AI needs to help people, physicians, and people in the medical field be as productive as possible. It should not replace human beings. At the end of the day, as a patient, you know, you want to have this interaction with another human regarding your care. You want to actually get messages that relate to you in ways that you can understand. Welcome to Locus Podcast. What fascinates you? Conversations with entrepreneurs, engineers, and visionaries who are driven to bring innovations to life. I'm your host, Bobby Mukherjee. Today, I want to dive into three stories that showcase the future of personalized medicine, with one exceptional professor at the middle of them all, Dr. Olivier Elemento. Dr. Elemento is the director of the Engländer Institute for Precision Medicine and holds several positions at the Meyer Cancer Center at Cornell Medical College, including associate director of the Institute for Computational Medicine, and most recently, associate program director of the Clinical and Translation Science Center. Dr. Elemento's research group combines big data and AI with experimentation and genomic profiling to accelerate the discovery of cancer cures. They have been published in over 200 scientific papers and featured in major media outlets, including Popular Science, Gizmodo, and the Huffington Post. But today, we want to explore just three of these stories. What could you do if you could sequence a tumor? What could you do if you could then replicate a tumor? And what could you do if you applied AI to in vitro fertilization. Okay, so for the sound check purposes, in your copious free time, are you more of a book reader or do you like watching Netflix or HBO? How do you decompress? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. I um, read a lot of books. Actually, I, you know, actually, I don't read books. I listen to books. I've uh, discovered actually, uh, unfortunately, I should have discovered earlier, but uh, at, uh, you know, so many books are available now in kind of audio, you know, and, and Audible, or even the, the New York Public Library actually has like, you know, a million books that are, you know, audio books. Oh, wow. For free. And they're just amazing. And I listen to a lot of audio books these days, which I realize is awesome because you can go to the gym and listen to a book. You can, you know, you do your shopping and listen to a book. You can do the laundry or, you know, do the dishes. And actually, it's funny because actually now I kind of like want to do the dishes, you know, want to do the laundry. I want to actually, I want to exercise more because it just gives me more time to listen to books. It's uh, <laughs> it's actually changed my life in, in a positive way. It's funny. Yeah. That's great. I think we may, if you don't mind, I think we may, we may use excerpts of that. That's like a great joke to put in the middle yeah. somewhere. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I look forward to doing the dishes. I think it's not the quote people are expecting <laughs> when they listen to a Dr. Elementor podcast. <laughs> Go for it. It is, it is the truth. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be in that lab that you're talking to us from. My background originally is in uh, mechanical engineering. That was a very long time ago. I've uh, always had a uh, you know fascination regarding engineering and how to build things. I had actually a fascination uh, regarding robotics, you know, from uh, from an early uh, early age. But I always sort of maintained this really great interest in both two really important topics that are now important in my life which is biology and informatics. As I was doing my studies in mechanical engineering, I really maintained this you know, great interest in informatics. In fact, I took many courses in informatics and computer science when I was uh, in college. Towards the end of my uh, engineering studies, I was kind of you know, interested in uh, maybe expanding you know, the scope of my uh, studies, if you want. And so I decided to do a, a master's in uh, artificial intelligence. And I had a great time doing this, you know, a master's learning new things. It was you know, artificial intelligence 
many, many years ago, long, long before, you know, it was cool to be walking in, in AI. It was essentially kind of during the uh, AI winter that I you know, sort of did this uh, curriculum. But I also, as I say, kind of kept this interest in biology. Towards the end of my studies in artificial intelligence, I got a chance to work with a great former mentor of mine on a topic that involved analysis of biological data. And uh, it was uh, using self-organizing maps Cohonan maps, uh, basically a special type of uh, neural network that uh, you know used to be very popular back then. And so, you know, the sort of confluence of these different aspects led me to be very interested in computational biology and how essentially to apply AI to uh, biological problems. I started doing a PhD in uh, computational biology. I had a lot of fun doing that. It was more of a theoretical sort of type of, of PhD where I was trying to reconstruct histories of gene duplication. You know, the human genome has a lot of copies of the same gene, slightly different copies. And I was trying to reconstruct essentially a tree of the evolution of these copies. How do you start with one gene and you end up in the human genome, for example, with like 150 genes, each of them is all different. So that was kind of a theoretical PhD. But it really gave me a great passion for analysis of genomes, which I continue to do during my postdoc at Princeton in, in 2003. I learned a lot more about genomics, learned a lot about how we can understand what genes are expressed and where in the body using information about the DNA, to understanding the switches in the DNA that turn on and off genes. And that led to the end of my postdoc to take on a faculty position at Cornell, where I basically decided to apply all of his background in genomics to uh, disease. Disease that I uh, you know, got really interested in was cancer and uh, sort of uh, applied a lot of his uh, uh, sort of thinking and analysis to cancer genomics, to the understanding of cancer cells, the understanding of what mutations drive cancer, why is it that people get cancer, what is the sequence of events that give rise to a cancer. And so, you know, we were reasonably successful in uh, understanding you know, all of these aspects. And that led to a lot of different ideas, including what I'm doing now, which is I'm uh, the director of an institute that's called the Institute for Precision Medicine, essentially trying to apply all these concepts that we learned about the genomics of cancer and other disease to personalized medicine, to try to make medicine as personalized as possible, which is also enabled by revolutions in technology, which allow us, for example, to sequence somebody's genome in just a few hours. We can actually detect, analyze the blueprint of disease in a very short amount of time and now analyze uh, how to uh, understand those genomes and how to treat patients in a way that's connected and matched to the genome. That's a quite a fascinating journey. And it seems like, you know, curiosity was your guide as you dug deeper and deeper, you kind of found these launch points that took you to where you are today. I'm just curious, like in an alternate universe, when you made a decision many years ago to start off by studying mechanical engineering, when you started that journey, did you have a slightly different destination in mind at that moment in time? What did you think you were going to do when you grew up? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. I was uh, I started mechanical engineering because I had an initial passion for robotics. I was always very intrigued by the potential of robots to, you know, achieve things that are to do for humans, including, for example, you know, sending robots to different planets, you know, to the moon or to Mars. You know, I always thought that was just an amazing feat of engineering uh, to be able to, you know, sort of create robots that can do, you know, smart things and enable things that are completely impossible by humans, or just, you know, very difficult by humans. And actually, I do think that, you know, the potential of this is still, you know, just incredible. I think in, in, the, in my field in, in medicine, there's so much that's going to be automated. There's so much where I think robotics eventually will be able to help automate things a lot of manually. 
even doing experiments, you know, a lot of what we do in our institute is manual experiments. You know, we are essentially doing experiments that uh, take a lot of labor and, and are very difficult. Uh, I do think a lot of these experimentation is going to be automated, is going to use robotics. You know, so I'm hoping at some point in the future, I'll be able to look back in robotics into things that we do more so than we, when we do now to be able to automate, you know, certain things that I think can be automated. One thing that I've always really loved about a university setting is that it creates a natural environment for deep specialists in very different domains to have natural proximity to each other to collaborate. And I'm just wondering if you've seen any of that come to life in, in your work at your lab. Absolutely. I mean, I can tell you, you know, what we do is fundamentally multidisciplinary. Analyzing somebody's genome, you know, involves all kinds of different aspects, you know, from collection of samples, physically, you know, surgery, right, in the first place, or bio, doing biopsies, processing of samples to be able to extract DNA from samples, you know, which can be, you know, sometimes difficult. We do a lot of single cell sort of type analysis where you have to take a piece of tissue and essentially extract all of the individual cells in the tissue so that you can process them one cell at a time. And, uh, you know, this you know, processing samples in this way also takes a lot of expertise. The technologies that we use for sequencing, for uh, analysis of single cells are also just, you know, amazing feats of engineering, just incredible technologies that we have access to. And we need people who understand these technologies to be able to get optimal results from the technologies. And then, you know, there's computer science and computational biology and AI. We need people like this as well as part of a team to be able to understand the gigantic amount of data that we generate on each patient, but also contextualize what we see in one patient in the universe of all of the other patients that we've seen. And yeah, as you know, a lot of what we do in precision medicine is kind of a patient-like mind type of analysis where, you know, we try to position one patient based on the data that we collect in the universe of other patients. And if something worked in another patient that's similar to yours, you can infer that, you know, a treatment may work in, in, in the patients with similar features, similar mutations, for example. So we have to be essentially able to be comfortable with this kind of analytics involving large data sets and technologies that are very complex. And then, you know, everything goes back to the physician. So we have to also be comfortable with interactions and communications and collaborations with physicians because at the end of the day, they treat the patients, we don't. So all of the information that we extract from genomes, we need to be able to communicate it, to put it in the report in a way that's succinct and clear so that physicians that we work with will be able to consume this information and use it to treat uh, their patients. Sounds like a really rich collaboration. So in your experience with working with you know, these different constituents, I'm just curious, have you noticed a mindset difference between, say, physicians and you know, data scientists, for example? Like, do they approach a problem in a very different way that you've noticed? I think people do tend to approach problems in different ways, at least at the very beginning. But I think what we're trying to promote here is really this uh, notion of community where, you know, people really um, have to interact with each other to be able to solve these complex problems. And as they interact with each other more and more, I think they start more and more to speak the same language and then start being able to understand each other, you know, in a much more effective way. And I'm seeing that quite a bit. You know, when we started this work a few years ago, there was a lot of uh, initial kind of silos, if you want, you know, people doing their own things. You know, by having people communicate with each other, meet with each other, you know, and finding as many forums and opportunities to uh, enable this communication, we are at a point now where, you know, it feels like one community. It's like, you know, everybody's, you know, talking to each other. And there's a lot of interactions between people who come from different fields. 
and they understand each other much, much more than they used to. It's actually very rewarding from my point of view to see that, to see that, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, cross-disciplinary interactions that are actually quite smooth and, and very productive. And I think this is what this field is really about, you know, multidisciplinary interactions is really, you know, critical to this field. And honestly, I think it's just critical to many, many fields. I think discoveries come from, you know, taking, you know, different people, different mindsets and, you know, sort of having the ideas, their ideas clash and merge. And uh, I think this is, you know, where fun science is, is you know, is happening, you know, when, uh, when you have, you know, interactions of ideas and people who don't necessarily always, you know, nobody talk with each other or interact with each other. That's where the magic can happen. So let's dig in a little deeper into one of those areas. So you were telling me about how you used AI to treat uterine cancer. So I was wondering if you could give us a bit, bit of a backstory of how did that project begin? Yeah, the context here is uh, a kind of a, a systematic attempt at Cornell to detect and uh, assemble the blueprint of disease, especially cancer, for every cancer with advanced disease. We uh, sequence basically the DNA of those patients and we try to understand what's happening, we try to understand you know, what are the sequence of mutations that happened in this one patient and what can we do uh, about these mutations? How can we use this very detailed understanding of essentially the map of somebody's disease to be able to treat that patient in a very effective way? And I think when we do this, we just realize that you know, in every cancer patient that we sequence, there's a lot of opportunities to treat them because a lot of mutations, basically changes in DNA that make the tumor cells different from normal cells, uh, that's what we call mutations. A lot of these mutations are what we call actionable in the sense that often there is a drug that can target the product of these mutations. What's great is that the field of cancer therapeutics you know, has also grown quite a bit in the past few years. We actually have now many, many drugs that are uh, available that can target the product of uh, mutations that we see uh, in patients. Part of the challenge is to match them. It's like, you know, you, you, you sequence somebody's genome, you find a lot of aberration, and you have a lot of uh, different drugs that are available. How do you match them? How do you find, among the list of drugs that are available, the best drug to treat each individual patient? So this, this process involves a lot of work, not only to sort of analyze and sequence the genomes in the first place, but to interpret genomes. Genome interpretation is really what's hard. It is where AI is really becoming quite fundamental because despite the fact that, you know, there are some mutations that we see that are kind of low-hanging fruits, you know, easy to find, easy to detect, you see them, you know that they're important. You know, the genome is very complex and the genome typically of a cancer patient has potentially hundreds or thousands of mutations. Many of them, we don't understand what they do. AI is being used now by us and others in the field as a way to essentially better read the genome, uh, better understand the genome. And so many mutations that are interesting, you know, emerge as better understood as a result of this AI analysis. And so the more we understand the genome, the more we can match the genome and what we see in the genome to the list of drugs that we have access to uh, and that physicians have access to. And so that's really sort of, you know, the, the broader context is uh, really this very detailed uh, building of the map of the genome that requires AI. So in the context of this, we've seen a lot of really interesting things. You know, we've seen a lot of mutations that we did not expect to see in some people with with cancer. You mentioned the case of this patient with uterine cancer. We saw in that patient a mutation that we almost never see in uterine cancer, a mutation that we typically see in other types of cancers. In this particular case, it was a 
a breast cancer mutation, a mutation that you see often in, in breast cancer, but almost never in uterine cancer. But we know now that the right way to think about cancer is not to only think about where the cancer is located in the body. The right way to think about cancer is actually to understand what are the mutations that are found within each individual cancer. That gives, gives us a lot of really useful information. In this particular patient, we were able to treat that patient with a drug that normally is used in breast cancer because breast cancer you know, patients have more often these, uh, these mutations. And we're able to help these patients by having this drug be quite effective in this, in this particular case. And it was only due to the fact that this mutation was found in this one patient and was clearly driving the cancer and therefore was sensitive to uh, inhibition as a result of treatment with the drug. Yeah, I mean, that's incredibly powerful. So let's take a step back and try to understand what building blocks became available more recently that maybe were not available five or 10 years ago that allowed for this jigsaw puzzle to come together. Maybe for some of our listeners, you could explain some of the advancements that have happened in just even basic sequencing that was not possible five or 10 years ago. What's really been amazing in the past few years is ability to sequence genomes from beginning to end in just a few hours. We can sequence somebody's genome now in 24 hours, potentially in less than that, actually. If you use some of the very recent sequencing techniques that have emerged, you can actually do that maybe in five hours. It, it is costly to do that. Uh, you know, essentially, the more, the quicker you get, you want to get your genome, the more, the higher the cost is. But again, when it comes to, you know, treating patients, I think, you know, very often, I think it's so important that it's really worth uh, spending the, the, the additional extra money on on sequencing. I think that's something that was not available even, you know, five or 10 years ago, this ability to sequence somebody's genome, you know, so quickly. And it's an incredible achievement to be able to have, you know, such broad access to these technologies. You know, these technologies are just amazing. They don't, they don't cease to amaze me. The way we sequence the genome now is really, you know, it's really cool. Essentially, what we do is we take all of the DNA from, let's say, a tumor, or let's say a lot of DNA, and we chop the DNA into tiny fragments that we essentially put in a machine on a sort of glass slide. We attach the fragments uh, on the glass slide. Essentially, using a process of local sequencing, we sequence millions and millions of these DNA fragments at the same time. We actually turn the process of sequencing genomes into an image analysis problem. So basically, we do sequencing by synthesis. We essentially kind of reconstruct the DNA of each fragment because of the complementarity of, of DNA, we have two strands and we you know, start from one strand and reconstruct the other one. Uh, we add nucleotides one at a time with a specific label, of, a fluorescent label. And essentially, we recall the attachment of the individual nucleotide as essentially a new uh, sequencing event. That allows us to visualize the way that nucleotides are added one at a time and essentially uh, sequence millions and millions of these fragments at the same time. The challenge becomes a computational challenge where you have these millions and millions of fragments, you have to essentially put them back into a single genome. It's kind of like piecing the puzzle back together, if you want. You have to look at the overlap between fragments and kind of you know, reassemble genomes from scratch. That actually requires a ton of computation to do well. And that's actually quite hard in the context of cancer genomes, which have a lot of mutations that can be very difficult to reconstruct and very complex. In addition to this, you have uh, a lot of improvements recently uh, in the field in terms of single-cell analysis, I was, I was telling you. Well, you know, we realized that, you know, in, in, if you look at a cancer, 
what we've done in the past is to essentially look at the, the, you know, the average DNA of the cancer. But in fact, you know, cancer has billions and billions of cells. What we should try to be doing is to, is to analyze the DNA of each one of the cells one at a time. Because we know that there's going to be a lot of differences between cells uh, in the cancer. And we need to be able to capture this uh, heterogeneity. And so new techniques in sequencing now allow us to sequence all of the individual cells in a cancer and understand the variability of each of the cells. I mean, this is not something that's yet applicable in the clinic, something that we want to put in the clinic at some point. But that's the future of sequencing, is to move away from this kind of average DNA of a tumor towards the analysis of each individual cell to understand the huge number of possible mutations that even you know one cell can have in a tumor. That's actually very important because we treat cancer patients with targeted drugs that are very focused on targeting the uh, mutation in a particular gene. What that means in practice is that if you have lots of cells and they kind of make random mutations here and there, it's not impossible that one cell is going to have a mutation, a random mutation that makes the drug unable to bind to the target. You know, and it just only takes one cell. If there's one cell that has this mutation, the cell is going to be resistant to the drug. And it's going to keep growing and it's going to basically take over the whole population. And that's how you end up with a cancer that's, resi that's resistant to treatment. You know, it's because of this constant evolution of the cancer and the fact that, uh, you know, it doesn't take a lot uh, of mutations to have a cancer that's resistant to treatment. The ingredients then that led to the success, you have the speed at which you could sequence and, and the fidelity of that data, then all the sort of computational improvements that have allowed the analysis of it. It's interesting to me that another ingredient, though, was the fact that there was this breast cancer drug already approved by the FDA and out there. I don't know. We could go back and check, but I'm guessing that drug had actually been out for a number of years. Absolutely. It's actually one of the first targeted drugs to be invented. It is actually the first targeted drugs to be invented. It is actually a very interesting drug. It's a drug that's been immensely successful. It targets the, the product of a gene called HER2. And the drug is actually an antibody, and the drug is actually a, essentially a protein that's able to recognize a particular mutated protein and bind to it and basically block it. The fact of blocking the action of that protein essentially is destabilizing the cancer cells and leading the cancer cells to commit suicide, to commit apoptosis. So it's actually an amazing drug, and there's been a lot of uh, you know, drugs uh, that uh, have come out since then that are, you know, use a similar sort of type of mechanism. But this is, you know, one of the many great drugs that have been invented. And there's just so many. You know, the field of drug discovery now is just amazing because, you know, there's so many modalities that people use from, you know, antibodies to small molecules to mRNA therapeutics, you know, as you know, where you can essentially re-express a particular gene in cell and cells uh, to achieve a particular outcome. There's so much that exists now. There's so much happening in the field of, of drug discovery. And so, the list of drugs that we're going to you know, continue to have is going to keep increasing, which is great because then you can you know, even better match somebody's genome to this growing list of drugs. The future of what we do is to learn better how to combine drugs. We're actually not very good now at uh, assessing how to combine drugs to treat patients better. It's, it's actually a complex problem how to find combinations of drugs that can maybe uh, kill cancer cells, for example, better. And it's actually a pretty complex problem because, you know, there are so many drugs and choosing the, you know, the sub subset of drugs that are effective in a particular context is difficult. I do think this is an amazing opportunity for AI 
and for machine learning and for data science to help. I always say, you know, there's so many drugs that it's going to be impossible to pipette fast enough to test every combination. Like that's not going to happen. So we need to kind of come up with a maybe a conceptual framework or, you know, some kind of a, I don't know, virtual model of cancer cells or virtual model of disease, like a way to simulate what would happen if you treat a cancer with, you know, lots of different drugs. Because we're not going to be able to experiment, uh, to do experiments quickly enough to actually test all these different combinations. So it's a new mindset that I think the field needs to, to adopt. And I think, as I say, machine learning and AI and data science, I think is going to play a big role. So it sounds like a, a mindset that um, is related to another topic I wanted to talk to you about, which was this idea you were telling me about a situation where you are making copies of a patient's tumor, small copies, and then... I mean, I think I saw footage of sort of a robotic arm trying different drug recipes on these different tumors to find one that's effective. And it seems like you kind of return back to your mechanical engineering robotics roots. Correct. With that idea, tell us more about what, what that is. Yeah, this is, uh, I think, also a, uh, an amazing uh, opportunity for, for patients. We sequence genomes all the time. And uh, as much as, you know, as we were discussing, there are so many opportunities now to use the genome as a way to treat patients. We're also pretty frustrated because the reality is that you know there's a lot of mutations that we don't understand, that we don't understand the function of, and there's a lot of mutations for which there is no drug. So we decided to take maybe sort of a distinct approach, you know, to essentially hedge our bets, if you want, to try to figure out what else could potentially be effective in patients, what kind of drugs could potentially be effective in terms of killing cancer cells without having to treat the patients or without having to do clinical trials in the patients sort of first. I mean, these are the approved drugs, so, you know, they have already been shown to be effective and safe. But uh, again, I think the, the, the challenge is always to find the ones that are effective on a particular patient. So, you know, there's a great approach now that uh, you can take, which is to take cells from the patients and then grow them outside the patient. And then essentially grow them to the point where you can make enough cells to create mini tumors. And the mini tumors, because they are made of the cells from the patient, from the tumor cells from the patient, they're essentially copies of the patient's tumor. And we can make, you know, a thousand or maybe even two thousand, three thousand, maybe five thousand full cells that grow quickly, such mini copies. So once you have, let's say, a thousand copies of the patient's tumor, what you can do is to try a different drug. It's like an empirical testing of drugs, essentially, as opposed to guessing what drugs may work based on the genome. You actually test directly on the patient cells what are the drugs that are actually effective at killing tumor cells from this particular patient. We can't do that manually. You have to use a robot to do this because we have to test a lot of drugs and combinations, and then you know, we have to measure different time points. You know, there's a lot of repetitive work and too much work to do this manually. But it turns out to be turns out to be a very effective approach for identifying drugs that work on individual patients. We basically, you know, just don't have to guess. We see what works and what doesn't. And this is something that is not yet a clinical assay available for patients. But we hope very soon, maybe one year or two years from now, will be something that we can offer to patients. The beauty of it is that it also allows us to make discoveries, right? Because as we start doing this, you know, now for research, you know, but we'll do this more and more moving forward we can go back to the genome and correlate the response of the different drugs to the mutations that we see in the, in, in, in the cancer cells. And the idea is that if we always see that a mutation is connected to respond to a particular drug, then you know, at some point, we may actually not need to do the, the drug testing. We can maybe just you know, look at the genome and find this mutation and say, well, look, you know, we know that every patient with that mutation responds to this particular drug. 
you know, so we're actually learning also how to better understand the genome based on this very large-scale analysis and drug, drug uh, testing analysis that we do for, uh, for many patients now. It's a very exciting way to also find you know, new treatment options for patients. And, uh, and we're learning about uh, cancer cells and the, 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 the genomes of these cells also in the same process. I read something you had, you had been quoted as saying, which was fascinating to me, which is that you have distinct age-related differences between tumors. And so you almost have to treat them as different patients and, and different cases, which I thought was fascinating. And so could you maybe expand on that a little bit? Yeah, this is research that we published a few, a few months ago now, uh, where we looked at a very large number of uh, cancer patients and genomic profiles from, from cancer patients, basically DNA profiles. And we compared uh, patients whose age is you know, on sort of higher versus patients versus younger patients. And we, we ask ourselves, you know, do we see a difference in terms of the DNA sort of makeup of younger uh, the patients with younger, or the, the tumors with, you know, from younger patients versus the tumors from older patients? And as it turns out, we do see a lot of differences. And it does match what uh, we've, you know, what has been seen clinically in, in, uh, for many tumors, which is it is often much more difficult, for example, to successfully treat patients who tend to be older. And nobody really knew why. I think, you know, you can make all kinds of assumptions about, you know, well, you know, the, the uh, chemotherapy is, you know, going to have more side effects on older patients, you know. But what we see now is that the biology of the cancer is different when the patient is old versus when the patient is, is younger. You know, the age of the patient is impacting the biology of the cancer in the first place. So patients essentially get different cancers or different types of cancers when they are older or when they're younger. Even though the cancer may be called the SAM, it's a, it's a colon cancer. But actually, if you look at the, the map of a disease, the blueprint of a disease, it actually turns out to be different between younger and, and, and older patients. So, you know, what we are saying now is that it does matter to look at the age of the patients and we should essentially, maybe potentially treat younger and older patients in slightly different ways to reflect the fact that the biology of the disease is different. But honestly, this is really, really the fundamental idea of our institute and what we do at Cornell is really to understand what makes every patient unique as we have the technologies to be able to do so now, all the technologies that I mentioned from single cell analysis to uh, DNA sequencing, we do see that every patient is unique. When two patients are diagnosed with breast cancer, if you actually look at the tumor, if you look at the detailed analysis of the tumor, you actually see that, you know, despite the fact that the cancer is in the same location, the disease is different. You know, the disease is caused by different mutations. It has, you know, maybe different immune cells connected to the disease. You know, it has a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uniqueness in the disease. And, and that, I think, uniqueness, I think, has been a bit discounted in, in the past. And I think we're trying to reveal you know, what makes every patient unique so that we can treat each patient in a very unique way according to what we understand about the disease of each individual patient. Yeah, so that to me is just taking precision medicine, personalized medicine to the next level. That's exactly what it is. You know, precision medicine is uh, taking personalized medicine to the next level. Medicine has always been personalized, right? There's no such thing as non-personalized medicine. That's the problem, right? But with technologies such as high-throughput sequencing or single-cell analysis or uh, you know, robotic screening for drugs, you know, for these mini copies of tumors, we can really take personalized medicine to the next level to make it very personalized, you know, based on the understanding of a disease, as we discussed. Staying on that precision medicine front, let's talk about another area, which is around 
using AI for IVF. So from friends that have gone through the process, the IVF journey can be really emotionally draining. And to me, as a, a tourist on the outside looking in, it just seems incredibly trial and error filled with really rough emotional highs and lows for the couple that's trying to trying to have a baby. And so tell us a little bit about how AI might be playing a role uh, in IVF and the work you're doing there. The context is really the same. I do think that all these technologies that we've discussed can be applied to all kinds of different disease. You know, we talked about AI for cancer. I think what we've seen in the past few years is that you can use these technologies for all kinds of different applications. I think one great use of AI in medicine is for image analysis, where, you know, you can essentially automate a lot of, you know, analysis of images that used to be done manually or sort of visually by, you know, one uh, trained physician. You can automate it uh, to a point where, you know, you can really help physicians be very productive uh, by automating a lot of the processing of the images, analyzing, you know, not one image, you know, at a time, but like 10,000 images, you know, at a time, which is, you know, also easy to produce. We became interested in uh, the idea of applying some of these AI techniques to embryology and to IPF, you know, a few years ago with some colleagues, you know, here at Cornell, because we realized that the embryology lab in an IVF clinic is producing a tremendous amount of image data on the embryos that um, they look at after fertilization. So in the IVF process, you know, there's fertilization that happens, typically using a process called ICSI, where there's injection of a sperm into the into an egg. And then what embryologists do after that is essentially they watch the uh, embryos as they developed as, you know, as, you know, initially two cells and then four cells and then eight cells and so on. They look at different time points and they assess the, the quality of the embryos based on what they see on the embryo. These are obviously we're talking about very small things, so you have to use a microscope to be able to visualize. They actually now uh, essentially record movies of the development of these embryos. And, you know, we realized a few years ago as well, that uh, the process of analyzing the quality of these embryos is actually not necessarily as robust as we uh, thought it would be. In a sense, there's a lot of differences between individuals who you know, watch the same movie but may actually come to a different uh, conclusion when it comes to the quality of an embryo. And, and that's important because the quality of an embryo uh, determines whether that embryo should be implanted. That is really a critical step of the process. So we got access to a very large number of movies of such embryos after fertilization. We had a lot of information about these embryos, whether, for example, the embryo after implantation would give rise to a live birth, whether the embryo would implant, uh, whether there was uh, chromosomal abnormalities on these embryos after genetic testing. And so you know, we had a kind of a, the, the crazy idea to apply AI to this gigantic database of videos and images um, that, we, that we have. And that really, you know, was amazing because we saw that we would be able to get results in terms of predicting quality of the embryo or chromosomal aneuploidies and actually life birth that is actually comparable, if not better, than uh, trained embryologists and also does not have the kind of viability that you see between embryologists. And I think it really sort of gave rise to the idea that, you know, we can apply AI to IVF uh, and, and we're, doing that, we're doing this now across the board for other types of problems. But I think, you know, this is a great way, I think, we think to eventually maybe democratize the process of IVF, you know, which is still restricted now to a few clinics. You know, it's not something that is, you know, sort of fully accessible, it's expensive. Uh, but we think that using AI, you can not only make the process of IVF a bit more standardized, you know, reproducible if you want, but also make it cheaper by essentially having sort of computers do some of the work that is done by humans and essentially allow embryologists to be 
quite productive they do as opposed to you know spending a lot of time watching embryos and looking for something you know small like why not have a computer just do the work for you and then you know you look at the computer what the computer produced and then you say okay that makes sense you know that the computer is uh, is, is uh, doing the saying the right thing and therefore you know this is how um, you know patient uh, you know this is what we need to do next for patients so this would be yet another example where it's not the case that you know decades and decades from now this is going to make the need for embryologists redundant. It's more embryologists plus AI will be much more successful than just embryologists by themselves. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's really critical. You know, embryologists obviously do a lot of the process, including, for example, the uh, fertilization. In fact, you know, you can make a case that, you know, the real value of an embryologist is really this, you know, very difficult process of fertilization because you can damage the embryo. You know, there's a lot of things that can go wrong uh, in the process. You know, if you can allow them to do more of that and spend more time and, you know, being as careful as possible and picking the right sperm and so on, you know, you would think that it's actually beneficial for everyone, you know, for them to, to do that. So if you can, you know, reduce the time that they spend looking at, you know, long movies of embryos developing, looking for a little, you know, cue, you know, yeah, it actually will help them be more productive. And that's really what we think. You know, AI needs to help people, physicians and uh, people in the medical field be as productive as possible. It should not replace human beings. Because at the end of the day, you know, obviously as, as a patient, you know, you want to have this interaction with another human regarding your care. And, you, know, you want to actually, you know, get messages that are related to you in ways that you can understand. You know, you want to have, you know, all of the, uh, the empathy and the warmth and the uh, communication with, with a doctor or you know, somebody in the medical field, that's really critical. This is actually a big component of medicine is this you know, sort of interaction between, between human beings. So you know, we, don't want it. we don't want to take that away. We actually want to give more of that. We want to actually automate everything that can be automated so that you know, physicians can spend more time with their patients because I think that's really the, the part where they add tremendous value to the process, to the medical process. By applying these AI techniques to IVF, the hope and the outcome is that the success rate of the procedure is higher. Is the driving force behind that, that the choice of which embryo is better? Or like, what are the key components that lead to the better outcome? So the choice of the embryo is really important, especially for uh, couples that have multiple embryos, choosing the right one is really critical. If you choose the right one really quickly, you can, for example, avoid, you know, maybe doing another cycle, right? You can, you know, sort of more quickly, uh, you know, be successful. And that's really important, you know, for a lot of couples doing IVF, everybody's aging, you know, and so, you know, the older you are in the IVF process, you know, the harder it is to, to have a good outcome. So if we can facilitate a good outcome as quickly as possible in the first cycle, I think that actually helps, you know, tremendously. But I think the other thing that's happening in IVF is very often because now we're not necessarily very good at uh, finding the right and the, the highest quality embryos. What is often done is that you, the physicians will implant multiple embryos at the same time, let's say two or three. And, you know, the problem with this is that and the goal here is just kind of hedge your bets, you know, is to hope that one of them is going to you know, be, uh, be uh, sort of successful in terms of implantation. The problem is that very often what it gives rise to is complications because, you know, often it gives rise to multiple pregnancies at the same time. And, you know, it may sound good, you know, to have, you know, sort of multiple babies at the same time. But the problem is that very often it comes with complications. Picking the right embryo, the right unique embryo, and implanting that one to maximize the success from one embryo is also going to really decrease the complications that occur sometimes in IVF with multiple pregnancies. 
So it's a combination of that. But, you know, we are applying uh, AI to all kinds of different problems in IVF, including sperm selection, you know, egg selection. Egg selection is also very important. You know, many, many women uh, are freezing their eggs now uh, so that, you know, they can, they can decide, you know, when to, when to conceive in at a later phase. That's awesome. That's amazing. But right now, there's not a lot of science when it comes to selecting which embryos to freeze. And we think that the same techniques that we use for embryo selection can also be used for egg selection uh, so that we can choose maybe a smaller set of embryo of eggs to freeze so that, you know, we can also reduce the cost and maybe also improve the outcomes down the line. I love the spirit of this in terms of trying to democratize IVF because it is so expensive for a lot of people. It is very expensive. And as you know, uh, populations are aging very quickly. I think, you know, many, many countries actually are having, you know, a, a pretty major fertility problem. And I think that IVF is, you know, not the only answer, but I think it's going to be an answer to some of these issues. You know, democratizing IVF is going to be very important. I think a lot of countries are actually in the process of uh, providing better coverage for uh, fertility treatment. And, you know, and I think if you can make the process more streamlined, more effective, uh, decrease the cost, I think it's just going to help. You know, it's going to help make the process uh, more available to more people. And I think it's just going to help a lot of people. I can only assume that finding talented folks to bring onto your team is, is a struggle because those people, I'm sure, are in high demand and you're looking for very specific things. What do you look for in candidates when you're bringing them into the elemental lab? The challenge that we have is that uh, we uh, are in, in need of uh, people who can understand both computers and programming and statistics and also the biology and the medicine. This is a real challenge that we have. We're looking for you know a rare um, sort of a breed of people who can really you know do a lot of things you know and you know and that's very hard. Thankfully, because you know we, we are trying to address important problems, you know we have some level of visibility, and that you know helps us in terms of uh, you know uh, being being attractive to 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 people. But you know that's the kind of profile that we look for: people who are comfortable in multiple fields, uh, or have the ability to be comfortable in multiple fields. I do tend to think that it's hard to be good at everything, uh, so it's you know almost hard to uh, have somebody you know who's like perfect, you know, amazing at you know everything that we work on. So that's why, you know, we tend to maybe sometimes hire specialists in one thing and we teach them, let's say, what, you know, what they're lacking, whether it's biology or, or, uh, or, or computer science. But uh, it is important really to, uh, you know, be flexible and to, you know, be, uh, you know, willing and, and eager to learn new things in, in, in our field because it's, you know, it's really uh, an interdisciplinary field by definition. And so, you know, it's, uh, it's hard for people who come into a field to kind of, you know, stay in their little boxes. You know, you have to be flexible and be eager to learn and be you know willing to uh, to come out of your shell if you want to really you know learn new things i think it's uh, and uh, so that's the kind of profile that very much we're looking for you know these days but you know obviously we also you know need people with ai um, background we need people with uh, computer science background we, we need uh, we need uh, people with those backgrounds one thing that we have for us being in a university is that we train a lot of these people you know we have phd programs where, you know, we train people to acquire those skills, you know, to do the research that we, that, we, that we want to do. And, you know, we try to, as much as possible, also use that pipeline. You know, we train people, and so we also try to hire them when, uh, when they are trained. So that's, I think, something that's unique about, you know, maybe in some ways universities, that we have also this training sort of program that's kind of built into our business model, if you want, you know, and it's a great source of talent as well.
these are really meaningful problems that you've been chasing solutions for. I'm certainly inspired. I know it's going to be the same for a lot of our listeners. Those of us that want to dig in further, learn more, maybe even participate in some way. Do you have any upcoming events that you'd like to mention or interesting papers or websites or articles that you could send folks to 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 do some homework afterwards? Yeah, I'll be happy to send the, uh, the website of our institute. We have a lot of material that uh, you know can be potentially used you know, to uh, to learn more about things that we do. As I said, you know, we have a pretty broad sort of spectrum of projects. You know, a lot of really exciting stuff. You know, it's just an amazing time now to be in medicine and biology. You know, these technologies I was telling you about, they are just changing everything about how we understand disease. It allows you know this really incredible understanding of disease, you know, down to resolution that we just you know could only dream of a few years ago. And you know, attached to this, we have all what's happening in the biotech world with all these new modalities, as I said, mRNA therapeutics, antibodies, and early detection of disease, you know, from liquid biopsies. There's just so much going on now. It's such an exciting field. And I'm so excited about the future of this field. I think it's just you know incredible to be in this field right now. You know, there's so much going on. I definitely feel that way. I am again so grateful for you making the time. I know our audience is gonna get a ton out of this. And Dr. Elementor, I'd just like to thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. That was Dr. Olivier Elemento, scientist, professor, cancer fighter, and a driving force for AI and personalized medicine. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Elemento and his research, go ahead and Google Elemento Lab. And if you enjoyed our show, please like and rate us. Until next time, this is Bobby Mukherjee.